Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Joining me on today's programme on a cloudy and cool autumn day here in the capital is George Sugden. George is the Managing Director at Cambridge Roofers Limited, a firm which offers specialist services for commercial roofing maintenance work and refurbishment roofing and maintenance work for the residential sector. Uh, George, warm welcome to yourself today and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us. Um, hi Scott, yeah, thank you for, for having me, it's, uh, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure for us as well, welcoming you onto the airwaves. And uh, normally at this point in the show, we dive straight into the subject of leadership and really bring that into focus in a broad sense. But considering that the COVID-19 situation has dominated the headlines for some months now, I feel that it's appropriate we approach the topic from that standpoint. Um, The pandemic has proven to be such a significant challenge for leaders within all walks of life, and it has significantly impacted business as well. Um, For your business, though, just to what extent has all of this changed things uh so interestingly in 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 some aspects we're we're quite surprised that demand for our services has certainly um increased and is quite high compared to how it was say this time last year so um we kind of we we feel like that's a little bit of a uh, perhaps a little bit of a bottleneck uh, where people are just kind of catching up on work that they might have otherwise done. Some of our more commercial clients tend to be a little bit more reluctant to spend because, again, their their economic future is quite uncertain. So it's it's kind of it's affected in a lot of different ways in terms of demand and consumer confidence. The net result is that we're kind of up on where we were and sustained growth, but in terms of the composition or break down the clients that we're dealing with, that's kind of definitely changed a, a fair amount. Um, in terms of procedures and practice and how we operate the company, we've, we've had to implement a lot of precautions, just observing all manner of social distancing where possible, containing um, contractors within bubbles. We had a COVID scare uh, about a couple of weeks ago, um, which was quite... Had quite a serious impact in, in resulting in um, several gangs from the company having to go into self isolation because of somebody testing positive in a, in a bubble, and we just had to adapt. And we've just reviewed it, and we've just looked at ways to mitigate that risk, increasing PPE wearing in certain situations where people are perhaps in close proximity. There's a cost implication to that. There's a, there's a labour cost implication. Um, I think it's uh, it. Um, it Getting compliance, getting the contractors to actually sort of buy into that at all times is is an ongoing challenge because uh, the reality is I think there's still a bit of a so not like a social stigma, but uh, you know on the day to day when you're in close proximity to someone and you can see that they're visibly healthy, putting on a mask if you're going to go within a, a certain distance of them perhaps can seem a little bit obtuse. So there is an element of kind of buy-in that we're, that we're trying to push and we're trying to get in terms of you know um, compliance across the board so that people are just adopting best practices. It's it's definitely moving in the right direction. Um, certainly this issue that we had where people had to go into self-isolation has kind of it, uh, illustrated that point and, and, and helped us kind of make progress with that. But um, it's, uh, yeah, it's I'd, I'd say overall, it, you know, overall, Perhaps from you know, from a psychological standpoint, it's it's certainly tested morale um, mm. with with people not really knowing necessarily what the future holds, not really knowing necessarily how they can, you know, everybody's just concerned for their job security. Obviously, at certain stages through the year, nobody really knew at all what's going to happen. So obviously, when we went into into lockdown, etc. So, you know, in terms of leadership. You're trying to lead by example. You're trying to set a positive outlook. You're trying to put every contingency and plan in place. We've always strategically tried to pursue clients that are a little bit more uh, resilient to economic fluctuations. 
some or more commercial clients with our ongoing maintenance contract have certainly served to help us sort of ride out some of the troughs with the you know fluctuating demand. Um, so that kind of that kind of reassures people when you know around you when they can see that there is a clear strategy that's being followed, and especially when it starts to at times pay dividends because there's when we look around, there's a lot of other companies perhaps you know struggling significantly more than us within construction and you know you just to a certain degree count your blessings because you know it's not food and beverage it's not some of these other industries that have been completely um sort of decimated to a point which you know again so we can't really complain at all but um a lot of the leadership comes into obviously just sort of setting a positive example but also i do feel that there has to be a certain confidence to change direction and upgrade, revise, um, adapt certain policies and procedures at, at a whim. Maybe that's based on some government advice. Maybe that's based on an incident that's just happened. And that kind of adaptability and not being afraid to just say, look, hang on a second, guys, I think we might have just, I think we might need to address this, adapt this. We're going to have to go in separate vehicles now. That's, you know, and sometimes you, you, you sort of got to push things through. Oh, yeah, you didn't say that was going to happen yesterday, that kind of thing. And mm. you you've kind of got to get comfortable perhaps even questioning yourself because I feel like it's just such a rapidly changing environment. So, yeah, in a sort of, sort of in summary, yeah. There are a lot of important things to take away from that summary there, George. One of them you say there is the impact that it has on morale and leaders have really had to step up themselves and be beacons of inspiration and almost reassurance to their staff to keep saying that things are going to be okay, this is our plan. But there's, it's hard to do that with so much uncertainty out there and it is hard, therefore, which takes me on to the second point, to actually plan as a business because... There is no long term as such anymore. You can't look ahead months and years. It's now days and weeks at best that you can plan for. So it's about striking a very, very delicate balance between being proactive and planning where you can for certain eventualities and then being able to react at quite short notice to changing guidelines and changing circumstances. How has that been? I can imagine it's been quite complicated. Yeah, absolutely. So... You're you're completely you're completely right. Uh, you can't you can't look too far down the line. So certainly strategically in terms of where we're trying to position ourselves in the market, the type of clients that we're always trying to pursue with, with you know business development, marketing, and advertising has actually you know we've maintained that in, in in certain areas because it's 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 worked quite well for us. But so, you know in terms of um, stockpiling materials that's got a limited capacity because we, we service quite a lot of different areas of the industry and we, you know, we, we have to kind of operate a little more of a just-in-time system um, and so in terms of sort of servicing different types of clients, for example, our supply chain is literally recently just suddenly we're, we're struggling to source concrete tiles of different types and we're hearing rumours from our uh, our suppliers that the manufacturers were a little bit hasty in laying people off when they perhaps could have made use of the furlough system. And now that demand has suddenly spiked, they don't have the piece of service demand. And so there's just a general shortage, another pinch in the supply chain. And so, again, you're, 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 trying, you're trying to adapt and then suddenly that, that happens. And so there is, you know, there is an, an, an intuitive element really ultimately that, that it boils down because it's, it's very hard to project an objective framework of, of logic when you're trying to advance through this 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 kind of constantly changing business landscape. So, yeah, it is absolutely about striking that balance. But it's you know it's day to day, and really only time will tell whether you've actually got it right or not. And while obviously we're still in this sort of form of, form of stasis as it were where business is not quite sure what's happening it's kind of stuck in this rut how long can you sort of see this lasting for because the, the, the reason why I ask that question is that even when we do hopefully have a working vaccine in place and the COVID-19 virus itself is no longer an immediate danger, it's still likely to take some time for consumer confidence to come back. It's not something that's just going to be restored overnight. So if it is essentially a matter of months until the spring when a vaccine will come out, I mean, it still could take maybe more like years to actually recover. Yeah, I think that's, I think, I think that's a very important point. Uh, 
the, the full ramifications of, of what is currently happening. Possibly, we might not have even scratched the surface on actually getting our heads around how this is going to change the, you know, the work environment, the living environment, um, or, or, or the social environment, or, all the different types of ways it's going to affect our lives, our working lives, our business lives. It, it's you, you, you can't really. It's, I, I don't think necessarily we're still fully grasping it because of all the you know, the ways the data and the government responses to the data and the policies and all the rest of it are changing. And with that, the economic impact of those decisions that constantly change. One minute, you've got a thriving local economy that's just about recovering from a lockdown. And then suddenly, they're, you know, they're a tier one risk area and they're getting shut down. And, it, it, you know, all these things are just happening at the drop of a hat. So in terms of the status and the, and the sort of we're currently in, it's it's paralyzing for decision makers who have to sort of look longer term further down the road in terms of the full implications of how it's going to affect um us i, I think it's it's just gonna it's basically forced a, a, a kind of a revolution in, as far as industries have disappeared and i think eventually industry is going to spring up out of that where people are going to reskill they're going to upskill, they're going to pivot, they're going mm. to have to evolve and innovate and there's going to be a painful period of transition where perhaps people people might have to sort of be quite heavily reliant on some kind of state support while they while they do that retraining. Others will be lucky enough to kind of harness their existing skill sets to continue through their working, you know, their working situations and so it's, it's quite hard to sort of break down the minutiae of the sort of of how that's necessarily going to impact on us as an industry. Um, certainly some of our clients who, who are homeowners, we're quite lucky in the sense that roofing is an essential part of a building. If the roof's leaking, if the lid's not watertight, it's, it's, it's got to be dealt with. So what we would tend to see longer term, if that really does hammer down on the economy in terms of people being able to spend, is that they're, that they're opting for patch repairs and short-term solutions mm. which actually might be you know quite quite poor value in, in in the longer term but you you know you've got to work with that and there's this sort of less major works being carried out but um in terms of in terms of how that's going to affect us longer term it's it's very it's very difficult to give you kind of an accurate view on on what that's going to look like if I'm, if I'm totally honest. Mm, of course. And um, I would like to move away from sort of the doom and gloom of COVID before we do wrap things up on the uh, the programme and sort of go back to the origins of your business, Cambridge Roofers, and talk about leadership from that point of view. Um, I'm right in saying that it's over 25 years since the business first started and it was a group of local lads in Cambridge like yourself that sort of started the, uh, the business. Uh, but I'm intrigued to understand, George, actually, what the inspiration was behind going it alone and building up your own business. What was that sort of moment the penny dropped when you thought, yeah, this is the way forward for us? Well, for me, for me personally, I've, I've never, I've, n- I've never, I've never been really one that was particularly well suited to working in a sort of structured hierarchical environment um, as, as far as working for other people was concerned. And I've, I've always just viewed you know, I'd, I'd rather be sort of master of my own destiny um, because it's just in my nature, really, in, in terms of that versus having to sort of work, uh, work within an office environment, work under under management, and and, and, and that sort of thing. I mean, I, you know, we're we're at the mercy of our clients, we're at the mercy of our customers. There's all there's all manner of kind of overarching authority that we do have to sort of deal with on a, on a day-to-day basis. But uh, fundamentally, I think it's ultimately about having freedom of your own destiny and being able to take full credit for the work that you put in and, and being able to sort of, you know, be able to affect change, be able to develop people, be able to grow, um, you know, individual skill sets for people who might start off as a novice, somebody who comes along as a slightly sort of um, a teenager who isn't necessarily got a lot of direction in life and you can turn them into a useful kind of uh, a, a, a roofer who can do all manner of different skills and you see people's confidence grow and they suddenly they can go from being able to just, you know, just do some basic stuff to start carry out repairs for their friends and family and that kind of, you know, being in touch with the, the, the sort of fruits of their labour, so to speak, 
being able to see a, a, a dejected, dilapidated roof and transform it into something that's watertight, not to sort of you know oversell the kind of the the, the industry. It's a very rewarding thing. It's a, it's a standard kind of way that pretty much anyone in any kind of trade will enjoy that, and 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 people get a lot of satisfaction from that, and that. I think as a leader, it's probably something that I probably take the most pleasure from is developing people and investing in people and seeing them uh, develop professionally. Um, that would, yeah, that would probably be the driving factor. Mm. That... So with that in mind, just for those young people that might be tuning into this podcast out there that are looking at the economic situation at the moment and are downhearted by what's happened to their employment prospect, what would your sort of message and motivation be to them to really get them to pick up their heads and start on that road to success? Uh, so my my message to them would be that you need to you need to stay aware, you need to look around you, you need to be absorbing the way that the different job markets are going. Um, so just keep half an eye on what's going on, but just work on yourself. Just You can't control what's going on outside there in the environment, but every single day you can develop yourself, develop yourself professionally, develop yourself spiritually, maintain your health, maintain your physical fitness. That sounds like a little bit of a corny kind of, perhaps a bit of a corny cliche, but ultimately, if I know today I'm a better version of myself than I was yesterday, that really will that will kind of resist any other kind of dark sense of impending doom or kind of depression that might be coming from the fact that I haven't got a job, I've had to wait a long time on the job market. But if you know that you've, you've acquired a new skill, you've acquired a new language, there's so much free information that's out there. If you carry on developing yourself, Basically, what you're doing is you're just preparing for an opportunity that will eventually come. It's a matter of time. And if you've prepared adequately, you'll be in a position to capitalize on that opportunity. Some people call that luck. I always call that the convergence of preparation and opportunity. Mm. And so those people who haven't necessarily done what they need to do, or perhaps they've been, you know, a little bit kind of, uh, I wouldn't say complacent, but they're, you know, if, if, they've, if they've given up because they thought there wasn't any point and, and any hope, it's it's about having just that blind faith that you can always improve yourself and that opportunities will come your way sooner rather than later. And those who have prepared themselves will capitalize and come through this and they'll actually, have, they'll actually be better in a better position as a result of all of this kind of um, catastrophe that's going on around us because they might have gone straight into the job market and not had those opportunities to work on themselves. And actually, they're a much better employable prospect as a result of spending however long it is, 6, 18, 24 months developing themselves. So, you know, it's, it's, easy. it's easier said than done. It's not easy, but it is simple. Work on yourself and you, you're maximizing your chances. And psychologically, you're always in a better place. It's a very valid point you raise. There are always opportunities that do come about as a result of a crisis and it's about building yourself up and being ready to seize upon those opportunities. And quite often people do bring out the best in themselves during times of adversity and we do certainly see that. Um, now, thinking about the uh, the future, and we've already said, uh, George, that um, it's you can't, there is no crystal ball. It's hard to see exactly where the industry and where the business will be in a year's time. But in an ideal world, if we just look to the future just before we do wrap things up, what is it mm-hmm. that you're really hoping to have achieved by this time next year, if anything? So, uh, if I'm yeah, if I'm, if I'm going to be totally honest, as a, as a company, we're we're probably shifted certain goals from perhaps growth to more sort of sustainability and survival, perhaps. Um, current trends of demand from our, you know, our client base and our, and our target client base um, are, are quite positive. They certainly show signs that it's, it's moving in the right direction. So as far as, you know, where we'd like to be this time next year, I would say, I would say if we're, if we're in a similar position, maintaining the same sort of steady rates of growth if our staff have moved on and acquired a lot of the accreditations and the and the MBQ qualifications that we're, that we're aiming for some of which should be dropping between now and this time next year uh, I'll, I'll be very satisfied with, with with how we've managed the situation um, but 
to like you say, you know, you just got to take it one day, one day at a time, uh, one month at a time. But at the same time, you know, we, we we do have to plan and we do have to keep developing people. So that's um, you know that's the conflict that we do sort of have to resolve. But it's uh, yeah, we're, if we're still here progressing at the same rate of growth this time next year, I think that will be a pretty solid goal achieved. And I certainly can't disagree with that, Georgia, for sure. And all you can really do is take it by the day and by the week at the minute, because as we've said already on this um, podcast, it is very difficult to actually look much further ahead at this moment in time. And given the amount of variables that there are still in this, I actually think it would be so, so beneficial to have you back on the programme with us at some point in this next year, just for us to see how things are coming along and we can just assess what has changed in the time between our discussions. Mm, absolutely. No, I'd be, I'd be more than happy to course um yeah we'll uh just touch base again and just just track and just see see how things have affected us um i certainly would relish that opportunity george it's been such a pleasure welcoming you onto the show today to share your views with us and uh, most importantly as well until we do hopefully get a chance to speak again in future please do take care and stay safe with everything that's still going on and let's keep our fingers crossed that we won't be stuck in this rut for too much longer you too scott and i i, I totally agree so let's let's just stay safe do what we need to do do what we can do and what we can control and uh, make peace with the outcome and that also extends to all of the listeners tuning in today as well please do stay well keep safe and look after other people as well and be considerate of them because it does make such a difference in saving lives during this time it was a pleasure for me to welcome george sugden managing director at cambridge roofers limited onto today's program um next up on the show we're going to be joined by matthew o'neill for his exclusive interview with former education secretary and incumbent leaders council chairman Lord Blunkett. That is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks, those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and of course whether they can receive the the grant 10,000 or 25,000 all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future but I think the second thing to say and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak Uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm-hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both Uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help 
which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm-hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's a had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the the UK and um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required 
Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we 
narrowing it too much to a couple of key centres in London. But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people have criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and 
social well-being front enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months, we, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002 when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect and what happens with one will then have a major impact on another and then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected so I very much if I were in government and I always think of things in that context what would I do if I were in government I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and 
needed some of its policies, uh, let them down very badly. So Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Sakir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that 
we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority in historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn mm -hmm. from each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.